The next set of cases was presented to Drs. Blanke and Rubin, beginning with a case from Dr. Dan Moriarty. This is a 58-year-old woman who presented with a mid-epigastric abdominal pain, nausea, and a microcytic anemia. She underwent an upper endoscopy, which showed a two-centimeter area, which is friable, and biopsy was consistent with a gist, suggestive. C-kit was plus-minus. Her CAT scan showed thickening of the gastric wall as well as about a four to five centimeter mass extrinsic to the stomach, and also multiple retroperitoneal lymph nodes anywhere between four, five, six centimeters in size. Could I just may stop you at that point because I want to kind of get the reaction of the faculty. Anything else you want to say in terms of the presentation? No, this is a woman I did not see before her surgery. So exam, at least noted by the house staff, there was no adenopathy, no hypersplenism, and except for anemia, her counts and her workup was otherwise unremarkable. Any questions? Yeah, what do the nodes wind up being? <laughs> yeah, well, well, can you talk a little bit about what you're thinking? Well, so when we see people up front who are destined to have surgery, the real question on the table is, will they need neoadjuvant imatinib? And the reason we give it is if we think they're ultimately going to get it anyway, and there are a lot of theoretical systemic reasons to give it right away. She's small, she's gastric. It's actually highly possible she wouldn't ever get imatinib, and I wouldn't do it unless it would downsize her and save her having a complete gastrectomy or a major gastrectomy down to a little bit of a wedge. But I've seen cases like this where people said, oh, she's got the metastatic disease, which, as you know, just only goes to lymph nodes 8% of the time, and it would be really unusual. But I'd want to make sure something else wasn't going on, like lymphoma or some other process. So if this were large, you know, large enough that normally you'd be thinking about neoadjuvant therapy, would you try to biopsy the nodes, or what would you be thinking? I would, actually... Again, unless she's going to go to surgery, in which case you could just do them at the time. But I think you're going to need tissue from those nodes for sure. Brian, any comments? That was the first thing that struck me was the retroperitoneal pelvic adenopathy. I mean, I think 8% is probably even high. That's true. Those are older it's, numbers. Actually, we're, now we're starting to stratify thinking about lymph nodes. Actually, the pediatric cases tend to go to nodes more common. So if you have a pediatric case, it's actually a good one to sample some of the gastric nodes and bring them out because what people are finding now that they're sampling the pediatric cases is that those are the ones that tend to go to nodes more often. It's really unusual for adults. So the first thing I would wonder about is, is it a gist? Because we had sort of an equivocal diagnosis. With that adenopathy, maybe it's something else. So maybe not gist. But then if it is gist, the nodes are going to be something else most likely. Any hints about the biology in terms of why gist doesn't usually go to nodes? None so far. Yeah, we're actually starting to get metastasis in a mouse model now that I developed in our laboratory. And the only mets we've seen so far are to the kidney. And so it's something strange, and it's something that we're all interested in getting at. We just don't have the tools yet to really figure that out. But the specificity of where gists tend to go is really unusual. I mean, obviously, they tend to go to the liver most of the time. And then it's my impression that the rectal cases, when you do have lung mets, it's usually a rectal case that does. And I've always thought it because they get access to that rectal yeah, just circulation. And so it's just an anatomic thing. Where they, so it's about what I know about metastasis. So you yeah. want to follow up with the case? Yeah. So for a number of reasons, she went to surgery. When the mass was undiagnosed, we weren't quite sure what it was, plus she was bleeding. So she underwent surgery, and the surgeon was able to do a subtotal gastrectomy and biopsied or took actually one of these nodes out. And the stomach tumor was a spindle tumor that was CKIP positive, consistent with a gist. And she had a mixed large cell, small cell, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, CD20 positive. So her gist tumor, it turned out to be four centimeters in size, had five to 10 mitotic per 50 high power field. But this was in 2003. 
So the workup of her lymphoma showed that actually Lumero was positive for small cells, but not the large cell component. And she was treated with RCHOP for six months to a complete remission. Curiously, we did a PET scan you know, after the surgery. A couple of reasons, part of her staging, but also looking at was her lymphoma going to be a pet avid lymphoma or not. And these retroperitoneal nodes, though not hot, were positive. And after her therapy, her pet has been negative. And surveillance-wise, she's been in remission both from the lymphoma and her gist. question, I guess, would have come up, what would I do now if she, with the same tumor, sort of what probably is at least an intermediate, if not high-grade-ish disease, would we have talked about Gleevec in the adjuvant setting? And now. particularly, could you give Gleevec and RCHOP at the same so time? So I've probably had five or ten patients who had two malignancies. Most recently, I had a rectal cancer patient who needed full Fox Bev and had progressive gist. And, you know, Gleevec doesn't play well with a lot of drugs, although I don't think it plays particularly poorly with chemotherapy. It's funny, when we had our 1990 consensus conference at the NIH, we obviously used size and mitotic rate. And then a recent paper came out in Seminars and Diagnostic Path by Mietinen, where they also included site of primary. So I've actually started copying this little table and carrying it around. Sorry, I didn't my credit cards. <laughs> and if you actually look at her risk of recurrence according to their sort of natural history study, it's 16%. The gastric ones tend to do pretty well. It's not that big. It does have a high mitotic rate, which is the only reason it's not 2%. So when I'm seeing people, it's hard to really know what the cutoff is anyway, but you know, under a 25% recurrence, the fact that you can salvage people 90% of the time when they recur anyway, I think given the uncertainty with the treatment for lymphoma, I would never have treated her even in 2008 for the gist. So when you say, quote, you could salvage a patient like that anyway, what do you mean? Are you saying that uh, survival would probably be the same? And if so, how do you know that? Well, this is my very strong bias, and I want to make sure I tell you guys that. I mean, Ron DiMatteo's ACASOG trial clearly showed you can push off recurrence if you give a year of Gleevec, but then people start recurring shortly after you stop. However, the overall survival curves from that trial were virtually superimposable, implying you can just either restart it or give them the Gleevec later. It's such an effective drug. I mean, truly 90% of people either stabilize or respond that it doesn't really matter. The only reason it would matter to me is if you think just as like colon cancer, where three or six or 12 months of chemotherapy with a matinum following surgery will cure people, then it makes sense to do it. If you think it's always a systemic disease that never goes away completely, which is my own personal belief, and you're going to have to put people on a matinum for a long time following surgery, I'm not sure it makes all that much sense to just put them on it for five years rather than just wait till it comes back. Well, what about higher risk tumors? Same thought. Actually, it's not all that much different. I still don't think you're curing them. The difference there is they tend to recur fairly quickly. They can recur in nasty ways. And that paper clearly showed that people greater than 10 centimeters really benefited from the drug. And then weirdly, the people who were 6 centimeters did not. But although I think that was a statistical phenomenon. So pretty much everybody agrees in the GIST world that the giant ones or the super high-risk ones with mitosis need adjuvant imatinib. But we can't decide how long. Nobody thinks a year is enough. But nobody really knows whether it's truly curable, like a colon cancer model or not. Brian? responding a little bit to Chuck, one of the issues is JNCCN came out with the guidelines for treating GIST, and so this table that was reproduced from advances or archives of pathology is incorrect, actually. So if, when you look in there, there's two rows that are deleted from that table. They're issuing a correction, so in the meantime, if you have that, that table is actually flawed very seriously. What journal is that? 
Journal of the National Cancer Care Network. Is that his JNCCN? Oh, JNCCN. Really? Yeah. That, that so they came out with their a... just guidelines from 2006. Yes, their table one or table two. I think it's table one. Wow. That's there was a, great a production paper. flaw and wasn't carefully proofread. I actually wasn't an author on that paper, so I'm not trying to besmirch anybody, but things happen. So that table's incorrect. So don't rely on it. The actual correct table is in Seminars of Diagnostic Pathology, 2006. Yeah, we don't get that one. Too so uh, <laughs> if people want to email put it me, on your website. I, can, I can email you the correct table. Put it on his website. <laughs> it's really useful. No, I it's a great, it. yeah, I mean, it's a, well, it's a necessary evil because the stratification really does work. I'll I believe, what, I, we'll I think it those, nails it. We'll put those tables in the book accompanying this program. How okay, about that? so I'll email you the correct okay. table. So I want you two guys to take a crack at explaining this disease biologically. I mean, so to me, I think what you're seeing, so actually there's some papers that are coming out in the pathology literature that pretty much have shown that gists may occur in up to 30 to 40% oh, of individuals like who are 50 to 60 years old, you know. But these are tiny little baby gists. I call them baby gists. Some people call them gist tumorlets. Some people gistlets. call them other gistlets. Yes, gistlets <laughs> is a good one. But they have essentially no biologic potential for bad behavior. I'm sure there's the occasional one that's going to behave badly. But if it's so common of a disease, it's interesting to me that so few of them really present in a clinically aggressive manner. And so one thing is size is telling us is that's an aggressive lesion. It's growing. It's dividing. It's getting bigger. And I th- that's just a reflection that that's got a significant biologic potential. And also, if you look at just under the microscope, mitotic figures are rare. It's unusual to see mites in a gist. And usually when we grade tumors, I work in sarcomas, but a lot of tumors, you count mitotic figures per 10 high-powered fields. With gist, it's per 50. The reason it's per 50 is because the mitoses are so rare. So when you see mitoses in a gist, it's, again, it's a reflection of, I think, the inherent biologic potential of that lesion. It's dividing. It's growing. And we see the same thing in mice, actually. When we have benign gists, hardly any mitotic activity, we can put it into a new genetic background, which sort of makes it malignant. And those gists become very mitotically active all of a sudden. And they'll just let's have very few mitoses? or Zero. Yeah. Zero. I don't think there's been a single mitotic figure found in the five papers that describe this phenomenon of these little but baby correct me if I'm gistlets. wrong, they do have mutations, correct? Yes. Well, some of them. It, the papers were technically limited, but they did find mutations in some of them. That's right. So, and my guess is they probably all have mutations. If I had to say, do they have mutations? I bet they all do. And I take it as a given that whatever the incipient event is, whether it's a kit mutation, which we see in about 70 to 80% of the cases, depending on the series, and then a PDGFRA mutation, which is about 10%, and then another 10% that we don't know what the mutation status is, they all have it. Anytime you see a lesion that we would identify as a gist, I'm sure they all have one of those mutations, KIT, PDGFRA, or the group of unknown that we just haven't classified yet. So it's interesting to me that some of them just don't ever pan out to be, or most, most of, of them, them don't. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of analogous to prostate cancer, I right. think, where we have Gleason pattern 2 plus 2, 2 plus 3, 3 plus 3, this basket, very common in men, but you know, how many people really die of prostate cancer? Not very many. So, I mean, I think from a biologic perspective, what we do understand at the molecular level now is, for instance, loss of the CDKN2A gene is very important in tumor progression in GIST. So it's likely that's the secondary events which give rise to the malignancies, the things that we all come to know as clinically aggressive GISTs, and we're just starting to define those biologically. But loss of P16 Inc4A and loss of P14R are definitely important. But it's a problem because the other question I always get asked by the gastroenterologist is, I was scoping somebody for an ulcer and I found a one centimeter gist. Can I leave that alone? And barring other factors that let you know it's going to progress, you know, we as medical oncologists always tell people to get them out. But in reality, 
under two centimeters, a lot of times they really are left. And when you said yours was at two centimeters, I was kind of wondering if that might be where it's going. Yeah. Can you take these out endoscopically? Sure. Actually, you can just pop them right out. It's pretty easily, but they don't want to. I guess maybe they want to just survey them with frequent uh, EGDs later. I don't know. Any thoughts about the pathogenesis, etiology, risk factors of the disease? I mean, Brian knows a thousand times more about this than I do, but it's one of these diseases. Patients ask me all the time, why did I get this? And I have to say, I have no idea. I have no risk factors. Yeah, I mean, it's in the wall of the gut, so it's hard to imagine that it's a toxin exposure. No, actually, there's a study going on at Sloan Kettering. I think they have some guys there, and they have enough cases. They're going out and surveying a bunch of cases to see if there's any etiologic factor which will sort of emerge. But to this point, the study's, I think, at its incipient stage, let's say, and it really hasn't produced any data. We were talking earlier about the fact that a number of the cases that we just happened to pull here had second tumors, you know, breast cancer, Mm. prostate, lymphoma. Has that actually been looked at to see whether there's any correlation with types of tumors or any kind of tumor? I mean, there's certainly a number of different case reports, but I haven't seen anything clearly across the board with the exception of the things like Devon Reckling Houses. People have looked at it. There's an AFIP publication, and it failed to show a statistical association. Right. Any questions? Where we going? I mean, if gists are so common, it's going to be hard to show That's exactly some statistical right. You're going to have other cancers in that population. Have any of the tumors that grow, you know, to cause mucosal disease? Retrospectively, do they do more poorly than the tumors that grow just through the muscle or exophytically? There's two types of mucosal involvement. So the most common is just ulceration. And ulceration's never been associated with more aggressive behavior. But... There's another thing we call mucosal invasion, which is actually when the neoplasm infiltrates across the muscularis mucosa into the epithelium and sort of surrounds and entraps the epithelium like a lymphoma. When you see that, that's definitely associated with the worst prognosis. It's not very common, though. That's why it's not listed as a prognostic factor in any of our risk stratifications. But pathologists know that. And when I teach about gists to pathologists, that's one of the things we like them to put sort of in a comment, that there's actual mucosal invasion because it's definitely assisted with high-risk behavior, but usually it's already high-risk by the criteria that we established, size, location, and mitotic rate. 